Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up, and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, as always, are the Hogs. In Atlanta. In Atlanta at the ETS and SPL meeting. Every year, we have the annual ETS and SPL meeting. Baruch Hashem. Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature. And every year, we have a special episode of the Rob and Caleb Show where we sit around our hotel room, around the table with a couple of mics, four Macintosh computers, and my father, Tim Hegg, and... Gary Springer. Shalom. What up, guys? How's it going? Hey, Shalom. Good to be here. I mean, it's really tough because we're right across the table from each other. Yes, but, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, this is not like two sides of the same state kind of thing. I know. So we need to like... I know. We, we need some new music. We need a new intro. Okay, so today we're going to talk... So I had a... Conver- I'll set this up. We'll launch right into this. Well, Caleb, we should make one point, though. Go ahead, make this one point. Is, this is uh, our 101st show, I think. That is right, 101. Um, so This is the Rob and Caleb Show 101. Really? Basics. Wow. <laughs> so the question is... Gary's trying to turn the heat off in the, in the hotel room. Yeah. Thank you. I, I just wanted to say that uh, the gematria of 101 is Malachi. The word Malachi, Malachi, is. How did you figure that out? He's got a I'm website. Quick he goes on to. my gematria calculator okay. here. So we're at show 101, and so I don't know if that's going to be prophetic of our show or not. If we but, have uh, any people tuning in from uh, tune in or joining us for the first time, Rob is joking. Also Zebulun. <laughs> Okay, so I'll set this show up. We'll launch right in. Basically, what happened was yesterday I was chatting with a gentleman down in the lobby of the ETS, and uh, I was explain. I was trying to quickly explain to him what one Torah theology was. He is a teacher, and a I believe he's a pastor as well. And so he, um, I was telling him that. I believe that the Torah is an act for Jew and Gentile today. And he had presented a paper at the ETS meeting on, oh, let's see here. What was his on? Oh, yes. Uh, did, did, uh, God did not, his, his, the title of his paper was God Did Not Divorce Israel. It was a really good paper. And, and he uh, basically said a lot of the things that I agree with and that I uphold. And so we were kind of batting around, you know, what my theology was. And he asked about 1 Corinthians 8. And Colossians 2, in reference to Acts 15. So, the 1 Corinthians 8 passage, I will read this. 8.1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote, gods, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom 
are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Okay, and he goes on. So uh, then let's skip down to 8, verse 8. Food will not uh, commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in a who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Messiah died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Messiah. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So this gentleman's point was that it seems as though uh, Paul is saying that we can eat food offered to idols. And how would I reconcile this according to the Torah? My response to that was that the Torah actually never tells us that we can't eat food that has been quote-unquote offered to idols. And we talked a little bit about Acts uh, 15 in the Jerusalem Council, and uh, by the time he had to leave to catch his flight, he was saying that this kind of blew his mind. He had never thought of the idea that the Torah doesn't tell us not to eat food offered to idols. So then the question is, if the Torah never tells us not to, it never gives us a command, don't eat food offered to idols. Why is this a presumed uh, subject or a presumed commandment by the Christian church, churches and pastors and by the Messianic movement? I would uh, think that many Messianics assume that there, there is a command not to eat food offered to idols. And go. One thing I was thinking here, Caleb, is the larger context of 1 Corinthians and one of the papers you were sharing with me that you saw the other day about slogans, Corinthian slogans yeah. being repeated. And Paul will say, we know from chapter 6, uh, just a couple chapters before the passage we're looking at here, they're talking about sin, sexual sin. Yeah. And, and so chapter 6 is about sexual immorality. Chapter 7, also about proper sexual conduct, what relationships are proper, which are not. And that when he gets to chapter 8 and he starts talking about uh, meat, food offered to idols, he'd already spent a whole bunch of time talking about sexual immorality. And it is, I wonder if, you know, scholars have pointed out throughout Corinthians, plus the phrase, all things are lawful for me. Yeah. Or every sin that a person commits is outside his body. That these are seen by many scholars to be quotes, slogans that Corinthians were repeating. And not, wait, wait, we should we should uh, we should expand on that. Not Corinthians in terms of the city, but actually the Corinthian church. These were ideas, the the, the, theological little uh, slogans that had crept in somehow, and that it's possible that when he says um, uh, in chapter eight. No food brings us closer to God, or we are no worse if we do not eat, or no better if we do. But then verse 9, be careful that this liberty of yours does not become a hindrance to the weak. In other words, he wants them to have a constraint 
both first with regard to sexual desires and and how that had manifested itself in in uh, uh, transgression in the community, and then again in meat offered dials. I think that if we look at both those together, and then we go back to the Torah, we're going to see that those do indeed go together. I was going to say, too, if our listeners have access to the Net Bible, and the, uh, especially a Net Bible with notes, you can look along in this passage, and the Net Bible does a good job of identifying these slogans, so you get a really good feel for what Paul was having to deal with. And I think that we think of slogans all the time, but in this respect, I think these were concepts or ideas that the church, I mean, if you came on there on any given Shabbat and wanted to know what they were all about, you probably have these slogans fired off at you. And maybe you had some people that had the wrong kind of zeal, uh, or maybe they were a little bit arrogant. And Paul was uh, correcting them with this letter. Well, the, the, and the point about, uh, maybe we should explain a little bit on slogans too, the idea of a slogan within the Corinthian assembly, church, synagogue, whatever you want to say, is more that they were using these sayings to basically set up their theology and ability to sin. So we're doing these sexual sins, you know, and these sexual sins that are heinous in the eyes of uh, the, uh, the rest of the believing community around us. But really, all sin is outside the body. You know, that's like one of the slogans, all sin is outside the body. And so that means that what we do, you know, if it's bodily, it doesn't matter. It's what's in the spirit that matters. Let's see, okay, so let's talk a little bit about... Uh, so I have a question there. Uh, if you, let me interrupt here. So uh, what you're saying is that the slogans, uh, if what matters is what your thinking is or what your thoughts are or what your uh, beliefs are and not so much what you physically do. Well, I'm uh, saying that that's what the Corinthians are yeah, saying. Yeah. So are you suggesting that there's a nascent or beginning Gnosticism that is uh, being accepted by the early believers, or uh, maybe I should say that was attacking the early believing communities, and some of them were believing it, so that they're saying, you know, the body doesn't really matter, it's what's it's what, it's what the non-physical part of me is. is Tim, that is that similar to the sh- what Schaefer, we were talking about the other day about Schaefer's point of the house, upstairs and the downstairs. Yeah. If we divorce the upstairs... From the downstairs, we can put whatever we want upstairs, and we're going to say it doesn't matter what I'm doing downstairs. Okay, so so let's actually go. I'll I'll give you this guy's thesis from the paper that I saw, not the guy that I was talking to about this, but I saw a paper on slogans in First Corinthians. This was on First Corinthians six. Did you want to interject here before? Okay, um, so this is on six First uh, Corinthians six. The actual slogan. This gentleman argued that the actual slogan is in six eighteen. He sent me his full eighteen page paper which I still have yet to review. But listen to how this would work out. So starting in 15, he says, in 1 Corinthians 6.15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of the Messiah? Shall I then make the members of Messiah and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Now we have what is considered the slogan by this gentleman. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. Now Paul would be responding here. But the sexual, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Amen. That's so your body is now possessed by God and that it's a temple of the Ruach HaKodesh, which means what? Which means they go together. Holiness is a bodily as much as spiritual. We can't divide, we can't parse people into division saying this part is holy and this part's not. And that goes along with the uh, with the Hebraic, uh, you know, with the Tanakh, where it talks about souls as whole people. Because the Tanakh will say, will use the word nefesh, which yeah. is the Hebrew word for soul, to say there were 400 nefeshot in this particular city, which means there are 400 people. It's not saying there were unembodied spirits yeah, right. floating around. So, okay, so okay, so he's t- he's bringing up these slogans then that they were fully aware of, but maybe they had uh, imbibed them in a way that were uh, causing them to to think improperly about what Yeshua had said and what the apostles were teaching. And what would the ramifications of them, how would they think of Yeshua? That Yeshua is somehow, God is there, but his body's not God. Like his body is separate. Um, I mean, what are the ramifications for how they would view Yeshua if they believed these slogans? Well, the early Gnostics, and we don't really, according to what I've read recently, they they seem, the scholars in, in Gnostic history seem to think that um, by the time you come to the second century, you have you have real Gnosticism, which basically says anything material, anything that has substance, is endowed with with evil. So then, by the time you come to the second century, Valentinus and several others, several other these leaders, were having a grave difficulty with the incarnation of the Messiah because he came in a physical body. So they were coming up with all of these, what I would say are kind of crazy theories, that his body was just an illusion. You know that he, his body wasn't really there. You, it just—it was like a holograph. Everybody saw it, but it wasn't really there. Others later on came up with the idea that his spirit or his soul uh, didn't ever touch his body; that there was an insulation between them, so that his soul or spirit was never defiled, but his body was uh, sinful and so forth. And you, this goes into ultimately in early Christ, Christian history, Docetism, that where they said that, you know. It, it was not his soul that died, it was his body that died, and they tried to bifurcate those two or divide those two to the point where... Because they were coming from the presupposition that the body is bad. Exactly. Right? I mean, in other words, and, and thinking about presuppositionalism, like right. we, we start with a, a, a supposition. The body is bad, therefore you sh- God could not be a body. Right. And that we need to uh, guard ourselves. Well, right. now we are... are our uh, conversations about Shapira recently. Shapira holds to a some form of dissetism. Right. And, you know, it, it does come down to this. Uh, as we were listening to a paper just a few hours ago, um, we have to come to the point where we, where we, on the one hand, seek to understand and rationally explain the unexplainable, which is that God became flesh. Okay, we recognize that there's a tension there that we can't resolve. And John knew it when he wrote it. And, non- and John knew it when he wrote it. And so basically this idea that you try to figure out how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work together and that you try to come up with a clear solution so that it's no longer a problem, so it's no longer a mystery, if you do that, then you have unraveled a mystery and that's a problem. Leave it as unexplainable and uh, as the glory of God is beyond us. Okay, so let's talk then about this assertion. It seems like everyone just assumes that we are told in the Torah not to eat food offered to idols. It makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Sure. It makes, and I'm thinking of Acts 15. Of right? course, yeah. But but Acts 15, I would posit that Acts 15 is more speaking to what you would have to do 
I mean, sure, we're talking about idolatrous practice, but I would think that that's talking more to what you have to do to be accepted by the Jewish community at large. Not In other as, words, to avoid any connection with idolatrous practice. Yeah, right? exactly. So even so, I'm not saying that the I'm not necessarily saying that the laws in in Acts 15 are not speaking to specific laws within the Torah. But what I'm saying is is that the, it could or couldn't. I mean, just take take away from, from for a second. Basically, what the four laws in Acts 15 seem to be doing is saying these are the four things you have to do to be accepted by the Jewish community. So those could take take away what the actual laws are. Those laws could be either oral tradition according to the community at large, or it could be Torah commands at, that the Torah communities see as vital. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I think that this this prohibition that comes in Acts 15, one of the four prohibitions of the Jerusalem Council, not to eat food offered to idols, finds its roots in Exodus 34, verses 12 and following. I'll read it. Watch yourselves that you make no, and he's talking to Israel, right, as they're coming, th- uh, as they're preparing to come into the land and, and marching through the desert to come into the land. Give me the, uh, give me the reference for more time. Exodus 34, 12 and following. Hishamer lecha. Yeah. Watch yourselves, guard yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god for the Lord, whose name is, and this would be for Hashem, yod whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and your daughters might play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Now what's the point? To eat the the meat, or the that which is offered to idols, is to participate in a covenant meal with the idols as the one that you're celebrating. As the, as the pagan god... You're eating a meal to the to the honor of the pagan god. So would you? So then would you say that that this is that this is different than just eating eating? I mean, talk about for a few seconds. What did the, you know? We we believe that they made incantations over entire markets towards uh, f- false gods. We also know that Gentiles often blessed uh, food within their specific store storefronts uh, that were being sold. Right? I mean, we know these things, right? Right. Or are they just assumed? <clears throat> Well, there's no doubt about the fact that there, that there was, you know, that the Roman and Greek culture imbibed uh, the worship of pagan gods. They had a pantheon, and they were god and goddesses, and they offered sacrifices to them. This is attested not only in in uh, Josephus, but other historians like Tacitus and others. Um, okay, and they did those the fourth. They incorporated those four things in Acts 15, right? They they uh, they sometimes, not always, but they sometimes strangled the uh, sacrificial animal, there was some kind of, uh, they felt was some kind of, not joy, but some kind of necessary angst in hearing the squealing and the screaming of an animal as it died in a very painful way. Then they would, uh, they would drink the blood. Um, they would offer the, the animal and its meat to the god or goddess that they were celebrating as, an, as a sacrifice. And, of course, there was then the inclusion of fertility cult in the uh, pagan cultures, in the pagan uh, temples, there in uh, in you know in the Roman and Greek culture, which would involve 
fornication, right? They would expect that those who came in would give their money to the temple, would also cohabit with the uh, temple prostitutes as a way of pleasing the gods in order to encourage them to bring fertility and so forth and so on. So those are the four things. But but uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, concerning the, uh, and I'm starting with verse 4, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one, right? As you read. But even, and I'm reading now out of the so American that's a Standard. citation of the Shema. Right, say, right, exactly. I mean, we know the Shema. We know the Shema. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on the earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist in him, and one Lord Yeshua Messiah, by whom we are all things exist through him. Now, he goes on to say, but not everyone uh, uh, is is uh, strong to understand these. Some of the we, uh, weak, and we have to be careful. His point is simply this, I think. Maybe I'm, I'm cutting to the chase too quickly, but we can, uh, we can uh, discuss this. His point is this. You cannot participate in anything that relates to a meal offered in honor to a pagan god that we know is an idol and is therefore a demon, right? He doesn't. You know, okay, let's say, for instance, an imam in your city, and there are plenty of them in the United States of America, gets up in the morning and makes an incantation over your whole city. Does that mean all the food in your city is prohibited to be eaten? No. It means that you are not to participate in a ceremony that gives honor to uh, some pagan god, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're also not to... Uh, you have to be careful so that you don't bring someone into your home and offer them food, and then they have a weak conscience. Now, what is that when it says that? Uh, but you, you, someone comes in and they're weak. Well, you know what? What do we mean by that? Or what does Paul mean by that? It says, "For if someone sees you have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacred for idols? For though your knowledge, for, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined." the brother for whose sake the Messiah died. And I take ruin there to mean bad things are coming into his life because you've told him there's no problem and he's taken that in the wrong way or whatever, and now he's wondering whether your belief in the Messiah is true or not. Uh, by the way, just by way of history, we know from from historical sources, and I'm talking about non-biblical historical sources and not about rabbinic sources, but about historians of the Greek and Roman uh, era, uh, that the pagan temple was the place, think about it for a minute, if you were a Roman citizen, and you were not Jewish, you hadn't been raised in, in anything that related to the God of Israel, you'd been raised in the pagan culture and in the pagan religions, but even if you were, you, if you were a citizen of Rome, where would you have done your banking? Did they have banks in that day? Yes, they did. Yeah, that you could put valuables, you could entrust valuables to a bank, you could put money in a bank so that someone that you were negotiating with for property or for other kind of commodity would come to the bank and get the money and give you a receipt and so forth and so on. Where was that bank located? Yagura. Yeah, in the in the in the in the precinct of the marketplace which was around the pagan temple. And likewise, if you had a deed of sale, say you owned property and you had a deed, uh, whatever things that you had that were official uh, by way of a deed, you would have that registered in uh, the area of the pagan temple. So you saw these believing Gentiles constantly going into the pagan temple. What did the, the Jerusalem uh, Council decree? You obviously are going to be in the area and around the area of the pagan temple. What you're not to do 
is you are not to participate in any part of the religious services. Right, and I think there's two verses that you can look at specifically for that, too. You have um, Deuteronomy 7.26, which is referring to the gold. It, well, actually, if you go back to verse 7.25, it's referring to the gold. Don't don't covet the gold that covers the idol and then take that into your house because that's an abhorrent thing. Mm-hmm. And the other one um, would be uh, Exodus 20, verse 5. Uh, which says, you shall not bow down to them in regard to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right. And so the idea, really the question is, and this is, I'm sure, the question of even the people in Acts 15. If we are eating this meat, are we actually participating, participating. Right. in the service to these idols? And are we in some way bowing to them, <coughs> acknowledging them, and maybe even taking this passage here from Deuteronomy can we say that the the meat that's offered at the temple is like the gold? Why are we coveting even the meat? Um, but that would be to add something that the Torah uh, doesn't actually say. And I think that was, Caleb, that was uh, when you first mentioned this, that was the thing. It's like, I just assumed that it would be clear that we could find somewhere in the Torah that absolutely said not to eat the meat that was offered to idols. But lo and behold, it's not clearly Uh, spelled out it would have to be derived derived from again maybe something like exodus 25 20 verse 5 you know another point here just to go to the original language of first corinthians only two times in the letter of first corinthians does paul use the verb to flee uh in in first corinthians 618 he says flee porneon flee sexual immorality and in 1014 Flee from idolatry. That's it. And he doesn't use it at all in Second Corinthians. It's the same phrase, just a different object. In six eighteen, flee sexual immorality. Ten fourteen, flee idolatry. Free, flee from idolatry. Right. Those are the two imperatives that he's weaving. But he's right. connecting these. Right. These are connected ultimately. Yeah. And so we know that Paul is not prohibiting food that. Someone else may have thought, you know, if you, someone else says, well, you know, that was, you know, that was offered to idols, or I'm going to make a prayer, uh, you know, I'm going to make a prayer over this store and and pray and just offer everything in the store to idols. That doesn't mean that those things have actually been offered right. to idols. For instance, in First Corinthians 10, which he picks that same theme up, verse 19, it says, "What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything?" Or that an idol is anything? Well, sure, the food offered, uh, something offered to idols is something. But what does he mean? It means this, simply this, that when somebody offers an, uh, a food to idols, does it change the food? No, it doesn't. So what happened in the what happened in the uh, first century? They would offer food to idols, but then they would take some of the meat, because there was far more meat than what they actually offered to idols. They would take the meat, and they would put it out in the marketplace. Well, if you... If you bought that and and ate it, does that mean you were in participating in offering a, a, a gift actually to the idol? No. Why? Because just because the pagans make an incantation over some meat doesn't mean that it contaminates the meat. Because why? He goes on to say, an idol is nothing. They don't exist. It's a demon. No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons. Now I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10.20. It 
and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So in other words, don't participate in the ceremony. It's not that the meat itself becomes contaminated. It's your participation in a ceremony or anything that relates to, uh, to demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's 1 Corinthians 10.21. What does it mean to partake of the table of the Lord? Here we have the word table meaning altar. Remember, the, Ezekiel uses table, mishkan, to refer to the altar in the, in the temple. So the table of the Lord is the altar where things are sacrificed to the Lord. That would have been in the temple at Jerusalem. What's the table of demons? It's the, ta- it's the sacrifice of of things to demon idol gods in the in the temples. So, in other words, taking part of the in the ritual, being part of the ritual, he says, or do we now, verse twenty-two of First Corinthians ten, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? He goes on to say, all things are lawful. It doesn't mean you can eat non-kosher food. That is, that you can eat unclean food. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that. If you, if you have a conscience to, that's free to say, I don't have any problem eating this meat, even if it was handled by Gentiles and I don't know what they did with it, as long as I'm not participating in their so- ceremony, but not all things are profitable. Why? Well, you might have a friend that would take offense at that, a friend who is a believer in the Lord. You need to be careful that you not cause that friend to stumble. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market in the meat market without asking questions of conscience sake, Paul goes on to say. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. In other words, God made this and he made it for you. Don't let some pagan say an incantation over it and spoil it. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without question for conscience sake. He means by that unbelieving Jew. He's going to come in probably and... Uh, and you're going to eat, and you're not going to eat pork because he wouldn't serve that to you. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. If he's saying this was offered to idols, now I want to see what you're going to do with it. And if in his heart, and his mind, for you eating it would be wrong, then bypass it. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So there's no problem eating meat that you find in the marketplace as long as that meat is of clean of a clean animal, you know, not pork, not shellfish, and those kinds of things. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously there's some other restrictions. We're not going to drink or eat meat, uh, blood or whatever. But it seems in, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he clarifies a lot of what he's saying in chapter 8. I think this idea of, of being sensitive to other people in your community seems to be the main point of the First Corinthians 8. I agree. Really, the, the first thing is, and I like the idea of making this as a slogan, um, we all have knowledge. If that's a slogan, it's not to be received as divine scripture. In other words, how could I say that? Yeah, that it's, 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 it's a common phrase. It's a common phrase, and now Paul's saying, you guys keep using this word, <laughs> and I think you really don't, you're not getting it. Yeah. So... Uh, my initial reaction, of course, is to say, wait a minute, is he somehow slamming the book of Proverbs here? And he isn't. What he's basically saying, and follow me with this one, um, by saying, we all have knowledge. If we all said that in unison, we all have knowledge. Well, we failed in one one part because we've all just basically proclaimed we're wise in our own eyes. So from a proverbial point of view, we've just proclaimed our own wisdom, thinking that we're somehow promoting the unity among the brothers saying that we all know God and 
Go ahead, Caleb. No, no, okay, keep going. Uh, the, the point there being the focus of this, because he repeats it. I mean, he comes back again in, in verse 7. But this knowledge is not shared by all. So this knowledge and knowing, we can still say knowledge is not the bad thing. It's how each person has it. What's the commodity that each person has? Where are they at? And not boasting. I think the knowledge that's puffing up there, I would take that to say, you've just now said, I'm wise in my own eyes. That's a bad way to be wise. You should acknowledge by some, you should observe someone else's fruit and say that person is, is wise. You should never say it of yourself if you're following, again, the proverb maxim that says, do not be wise in your own eyes. There's more hope for a fool than for you if you're wise in your own eyes. And a person who's wise understands that. They acknowledge when others are wise. And it's almost like a false sense of confidence. We all have knowledge that if that's the slogan. Then Paul's coming back saying, well, wait a minute. We may all have knowledge, but we don't all have the same kind of knowledge. We haven't put it into practice. And really... Now you've taken love beyond that community of love and respect for one another and deference to one another and giving uh, giving each the opportunity to maybe even refrain from eating the meat, even knowing you can, knowing that you don't want to, uh, you're sensitive to where another person is in their life and actually giving away your freedom or your liberty in order to help build up and actually make the other person wise but not, uh, not in an improper way. Okay, but, so you just said that the 1 Corinthians 9 passage, oh no, yeah, 1 Corinthians 9 passage. Nine eight, 8, I'm sorry. 1 eight Corinthians ten. 8 passage is talking about uh, food offered to idols. So when it says that you basically can eat what's in the market, it's not saying that you should... Uh, that you're able to just eat pork or shellfish or whatever. Yeah, okay, but then you're going to have... Let, let, let hey, me hey, comment before we get past him. The one knowledge that we do all share is that there's only one God. And that would be the confession of all who are true believers, right? Mm-hmm. So from that confession of that there's only one God, then anything offered to uh, an idol is being offered to a demon. That is not a true God. I mean, that's one of his points. Okay, so but then, like last week we talked about, or two weeks ago I guess now, we talked about Chris Roseborough and his his little uh, show about Hebrew roots, and basically he's trying to slam one Torah in this. He brings up this passage, which is Colossians two sixteen, to say that that we obviously can eat whatever we want. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So his point here is obviously right there. It's talking. It's saying that you can eat unkosher food. You don't have to keep the festivals, and and you can keep Christmas and Easter, and you don't have to keep the Sabbath. Here's another aspect of the that presumption point that we made earlier. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> the presumption first. If I read from the pres- presuming that those commandments are done away, and that I have freedom to do whatever <clears throat> I want then I'm going to use those scriptures to justify my position. But in fact, those early believers have left everything. They, they are risking their life to f- cling to the communities that follow Yeshua, that are at the core, coming from their Jewish uh, culture. And they're bringing knowledge of Jewish culture and uh, words like Abba. They're learning phrases like Maranatha. Mm-hmm. And uh, these other words, they're learning the word Sabaton, which right. is Shabbat. They're learning new culture if they've not been exposed to it before. That is 
informing their life behavior and that they are they the, the, the Colossian ecclesia as well as the Ephesians and the Galatians are walking a brand new life uh, they've abandoned paganism they've abandoned worshiping caesar or any of the pagan gods and they're clinging to the god of abraham isaac and jacob the god of israel and they're understanding and they're being edified to do this as gentiles that they don't have to become judeans they don't have to become any kind of conversion process or anything like this that by faith that they too are included as full fully adopted children through the blood of Yeshua, and that that heart is one, just like where it says, what it, uh, in First uh, Corinthians ten thirty one, whatever you eat and drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. I do not believe for an instance that the early believers would have thought, oh great, anything I can, that means I can go eat pork. No, why? Because they're not thinking as independent agents. They are looking to the disciples of Yeshua and the early traditions to help inform their understanding. And the issue here that Paul says, if someone says this is from a sacrifice, don't eat it. He's not saying if they say it's from a sacrifice, oh, that means it's unclean. He says it's for the sake of that conscience who actually believes in the cultural significance of that sacrifice and all the things that it pertains to. Paul's saying don't eat it. But it's not because that it's real ultimately, but it's because it's real for that person. And you don't want to support any notion that they have that the table of Messiah, the fellowship table of Messiah, can somehow also coexist Mm -hmm. on the same table with the table of demons. Yeah. You know, the other thing is is that that mentality that the Colossians 2 gives us just carte blanche in terms of, you know, you, you can eat anything you want, whatever, comes from the idea that there's this monolithic uh, uh, Judaism of the first century. There wasn't. There were numbers of sects that were vying for uh, cogency amongst uh, uh, the Jewish people as well as amongst uh, so-called converts. Okay, so um, who's doing the judging? The, the primary the, the primary opening of Colossians 2 in this regard, in this passage, is don't let anybody judge you. No, who's doing the judging? Okay, and I think people don't ask that question. Um, he says, uh, uh, don't let anybody judge you in regard to, and this is verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, was that going on amongst oh the sex? Oh my. Yeah, They I were mean, judging each other? Oh, absolutely. Well, because Qumran, the sect in Qumran, whoever they were, why did they move out to the desert? They moved entirely out to the desert. It appears as though they didn't come back into Jerusalem for the festivals. Why? Because they it's a said political statement. Because you guys a, a, in the, in Jerusalem, you yeah. Pharisees aren't keeping the right uh, calendar. You're eating on Yom Kippur. You're you're not keeping things right. You don't even know how to count the Omer. You don't even know how to count the Omer. And so then you know, and there were uh, even with amongst the Pharisees, they were saying, 
you know, you can walk so far. And others said, no, you can walk a little further than that. So if you did a Sabbath day's journey, according to one ruling, the, you know, somebody might say, you, you're not keeping the Sabbath. Or if, or if you uh, took grain from the fields and rubbed them together and, yeah. and separated the exactly. wheat from the, the chaff. are followers of Yeshua, don't let anyone judge you in the sense of saying, well, I need to change what I'm doing, because as the apostles have taught you, and as you're being taught by the apostles and by the apostolic teaching, then keep the Sabbath as they told you Yeshua would keep the Sabbath. And he says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to the Messiah. What does that mean? He says, all of these festivals are not the end in itself. All of these festivals point to Yeshua. So as the, you as you keep these festivals, as you keep the Sabbath, as you uh, eat in regard to the uh, the Torah, why are we doing this? To show our identity? No, our identity is Yeshua. We're in Yeshua. We are doing this to say we follow a living, risen Messiah who is the Messiah of the prophets, and all of these things were pointing to the promised one who came. And just to go right along with that, if you look at verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 8, I just want to focus in verse 7, then I want to look at verse 8, and then look at verse 11. And the context of festivals, and the context of a temple, a, con- a context where whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's one Torah, there's issues of being defiled. So in, in accordance with teaching about those festivals, you're going to talk about the laws of cleanliness. Mm-hmm. In other words, what is it going to take to draw near to God? So that might be the, the knowledge here. The, the knowledge you're talking about is we all know God. We've all drawn near. We've, we've received your message about the Messiah. We've drawn near. We know. But now when you talk about the festivals and the purpose of the festivals, and I think more importantly, all of the offerings that went, you know, it wasn't just the meat, it was the grain and the wine and all the preparation you had to do in order to make that drawing near to God in the city, the place where he prescribed. In other words, this is service to him according to his Torah, not done away with in the Messiah, but fully understood because of the Messiah. So you have all of this body of knowledge to, to educate them, to yeah. teach them, to train them. Yeah. This whole body of knowledge, and they're not getting it. They think they got it. They've graduated. They got their PhD and meat offered to idols. They don't need to learn anything from this. Mm-hmm. And Paul's going, no, you don't know. You don't know God the way you should. You don't love him. You're not receiving the love. And I think in some respect, he's having to correct them in regard to food. You don't understand. There's a lesson about having the food that's offered, the sacrifice. There's a lesson about being clean and defiled there. But you don't understand. That's not ultimately what's going to draw us near to God. But then how do you, it's almost like they're wanting to throw away the one. We have the Messiah now, so this other knowledge isn't important because we have Messiah. But I think in this passage, you're seeing all of these elements about being defiled. And in this sense, okay, let's think about this in a community. If if, uh, we're celebrating a festival and... Tim, your brother passes away, oh, and weird. you have to you have to bury him right before the festival. Now you're defiled. The, we're all we're not all saying we're going to go before this festival and be close to God because we've kept the laws of cleanliness. We're not rejoicing. Suddenly, that's going to break our hearts because yeah. we're still going to go to Pesach. We're going to go up to offer, 
and draw near to God and be mourning for you, but that doesn't make you any less near to God. Sure, precisely. And I think in this case, you have uh, the people at Corinth. Maybe they've never even they've never experienced the temple. Well, and remember, there was at, a, the, the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a there was a saying to play the Corinthian. Right. And you know, in the in the first century, to play the Corinthian meant to act immorally. So Corinth was a huge center of immorality because of the many pagan temples that were there. Right. So this is particularly germane to the believers in Corinth. Could they just, uh, I remember reading in Plato years ago, where Plato basically said it was the duty of every uh, good Roman citizen to dedicate one of his daughters for at least two years to the temple. Can you imagine? But this was seen in their pagan degraded culture as being what a good citizen does. And so it was full of immorality, and these Gentiles who had come out of that culture and out of that society had to turn their back on that, but they couldn't think that just because they you know, adhered to a few restrictions that somehow that was giving them uh, something special. No, it meant that they were sim- simply seeking to follow what the Lord said and to do it with a good conscience, and that's, I think, what Paul is clearly uh, mandating here. I'd like to just take us back to Acts 16. After the decree had been written, Acts 16.4, it says, As they went through the towns, they handed them the decree. And, and the word order in Greek is curious. It's, uh, it's paradidosan otois fulasen ta dogmata, meaning they handed over to them to guard the dogmata. Yeah. And and so to 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 observe the decrees. So this dogmata is not it, it normally in the apostolic writings has to do with something that's not scripture, but something that is a probably temporal even decree by like the the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, for right. example, in Luke right. chapter two. Right. These are the dogma are uh, official decrees that have immediate enactment. Immediate, immediate people are taking it out and saying this, uh, this is a new decree that applies right now and that that's what happens. That's what's happening here when they take the apostolic decree and it says that had been decided upon or that had been judged by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 5, and so were the ecclesias strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number every day. Right. So this this apostolic decree functioned from town to town. It was widespread, taken, given, presumably in writing. The, everybody yeah. had copies of it, but it was but it was verbally explained and expounded upon, city by city, and it resulted in a strengthening of faith. If something strengthens our genuine faith. That increases perseverance. That increases. Right. That is that is fuel from the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And it increased in, and they increased in number every day. That means God used these uh, four uh, decrees. decrees that we're talking about to edify His church, to strengthen genuine faith, and to grow right. their numbers. L- let me throw a little. Uh, that means they had solidarity. They were abandoning something and coming to... Yeah. Let me throw out a, a real-life uh, uh, situation that would face us, okay? I noticed uh, one some time ago as I was at the store near our house 
there was some meat in the in the uh, meat department that had a halal stamp on it. Halal. 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 Okay. Yeah, the halal stamp. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and you all know what that means. That means it had been sanctioned by a uh, Muslim imam to say that this is, in their perspective, kosher. It had been slaughtered. It had been slaughtered according to their right. according to their <laughs> rules, and it had been. Now, had it been blessed by? Do they do a blessing? Uh, do the Muslims do a blessing when they slaughter in order to make meat, um, you know, available for the Muslim community in their area? Do they do a blessing? Yes, they do. Uh, at least I've been told that's the case. Just as the rabbis. Just I've as the rabbis. On the internet. I've read that on the internet somewhere. It must be true. <laughs> no, I have talked with people that I think have knowledge in this regard, and they said absolutely this is true. Okay. Well, then, would it be right for us to, or for me to buy that and eat it? Now, it was beef. It wasn't you know anything that wouldn't have been uh, properly, uh, uh, according to the scriptures, properly uh, chosen to eat. But if it has the stamp of a pagan on it, does that make it... Where would Paul have been on that? And my suggestion is this. Now, you may say, I'm not going to buy that because I don't want to, I don't know if those people get paid a little bit for doing this and I don't want any of my money to go to them. That would be valid. I don't have any problem with that. But in terms of the meat itself, as long as it doesn't have the blood that, you know, that you have to get rid of or whatever, um, and, or you cook it in such a way, if it's beef, which is a clean animal, I don't think Paul would have had any... I think that's what he's saying. He's saying some incantation, some prayer over a piece of meat doesn't change the meat. And let's remember, the the God that the Muslims uh, 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 talk to is not a God. He is a demon, if there is such even such a thing exists. Okay? So, um, this, this, I think, is a very practical situation. Now, I've heard some people, even some Messianics say, if it has halal you know, the Muslim marking on it, we should never eat it because Paul prohibited eating meat offered to idols. So I think this is a good illustration. No, he doesn't prohibit eating the meat that is offered to idols. He prohibits participating in eating the meat as it's being offered to idols. What do you think? In, in that, in that, I think uh, that back to the Acts 15, the yeah. association of these four things <clears throat> is very important. Here, Another passage we can go back to from Torah is Numbers 25. I just want to make sure that anybody listening to this doesn't think that I'm in any way endorsing Islam. What I'm saying, I'm using it as a modern-day expression. I wouldn't want my money going to support Islam either, if I knowingly I wouldn't want it to. I want you to actually clarify what you just said. You said, if there's such a thing. You weren't talking about demons in general. No, but I'm talking that, about whether someone that is called Allah actually exists uh, as, a, as, a demon. as a demon. And I, I, I would imagine that that's very possible because uh, there seems to be an awful lot of demonic uh, power and activity a in, lot of in death, a lot of death and so forth and so on. So I abhor that. And and we affirm that there is one God and only one God and his son Yeshua. And of course you all know that. But I'm just using it as a present day uh, issue that is facing cities uh, all over the uh, United States of America and probably in Canada and elsewhere, wherever you may be listening to this radio program, um, there, there is this issue of, could I eat this food if it's been handled by Muslims and packaged by them? Well, it's the same exact kind of thing I think they were dealing with when the Jews were saying, if it's, if it's handled by Gentiles and so forth and so on, can we eat it? And Paul's point is simply this, that idols are nothing. The prayers to idols are nothing. They don't change the food whatsoever. 
you do not you're not eating unclean food just because of that. Yeah. All right? That, so participation in their ceremonies is what he's prohibiting and that always includes uh, participation in such idolatrous things always includes eating. I think too this carries over to a lot of things that we see uh, I'll just say in the believing community at large whether it be a boycott against Starbucks or whatever the you know latest trend is yeah. I think uh, this passage especially here uh, is very telling. I think that when you have a people who don't in this case, they don't know what it means to know God. Their ultimate identity, that they are known by God, that God has actually forgiven them and is in covenant with them. They don't know who they are. They're anxious about everything. They're feeling like anything they do may jeopardize themselves from this relationship with God. They don't really know. They're insecure with their relationship with God. Yeah. They, they don't really realize what it means to be forgiven. What well, well okay, wait, hang on just a sec, though. You could say that about anything. People could say that about us wanting to keep Torah. Oh, they want to keep Torah, they want to keep the Sabbath and everything because they're insecure about their relationship with God. I think that that a person whose heart is to follow what God says and follow what he wants us to do in terms of sanctification should never be seen necessarily as uh, being insecure about our relationship with God. The difference I would make is this. And this is how I would classify a person who's insecure. They're highly reactive. They're tossed by the wind. In other words, something comes up on the internet and they immediately forward it to all their friends and it becomes the latest campaign. And it changes with every week. Winds of doctrine. That's what I would say the person, that's how I would classify the person who's insecure. Whatever's on Facebook today, whatever's on uh-huh. Twitter, it's what I'm going with. Whatever there's the no latest continuity or stability. They don't really and that, that's what I mean by they don't really know who God is. They aren't basing as you and I Rob have talked about um, this idea of uh, if you could say the most important principal thing, I would call it the tier 1 activity of your life is to love God. And that really is based upon God loving us first. And if we're secure in that one area, it will grow in the others. The more secure we are, the more we really know that and experience it not only just in our own lives, but in our lives with our brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. um, our husbands, our, our wives, our children, grandchildren, aunts and uncles, that whole family unit. The more we are actually living out this love, not just in theory, not just some kind of knowledge that we can you know, beat each other up with or we can persuade each other just for the sake of getting a bunch of likes on Facebook. Um, that's not the heart of the gospel. Not that there's anything wrong with getting likes on Facebook. <laughs> now, here's, I want to bring Numbers 25 into this. Uh, again, just to anchor us back to, to Torah, it says Israel, this is Israel in the wilderness, of course, Israel lived in Shittim. It says the people began to whore, which is Liznot, after the daughters of Moab. So the first thing was, They'd already been given the commandment of tzitzit, right? Which was to keep their eyes from zonot, from a whoring after. So the tzitzit are here to help us know that where are the boundaries of our own portion, that we keep uh, we keep uh, and attend to the portion that Hashem has granted to each of us as individuals, and that that's our priority. Once I start looking over at the other guy or, or that gal over there or looking at what other people are doing, I've entered into a realm where I'm, a, I'm abdicating the responsibility for my own portion and I'm meddling with stuff that's not mine. Right. And, and that's what they're doing Israel here. Is there Liznot El Benot? Were they wearing tzitzit? We don't know. 
But the point is, after this then, it says, and those women, Vatikrena, it's feminine, those women uh, called to the people to sacrifice to the women's gods. So after the eyes of Israel was off their own responsibility and they were looking at these women, it was those women called to them to say, hey, come sacrifice to our gods and eat. And then it says, and then the people went and ate and they bowed down and worshipped to those gods. So what we have is we have lust of the eyes there translating into a, a forbidden relationship that Israel then was going after a call to offer sacrifices and to eat. And it ended up in idolatry. These are all tightly woven together here in the Baal Peor incident. And I think that that's what, like we just pointed out, in 1 Corinthians, Paul spends two, three whole chapters talking about sexual immorality. And then he talks about idolatry and meat offered to sacrifices. And you have lust of the eyes. So they were looking, okay, and then the, 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 the women call, the foreign women call, and what do they have? Lust of the flesh. You know, and that leads to they what? They wanted to become one with those women. Well, they, they, and, they wanted, they, yeah, and the pride of life. Like, well, okay, now we have something we didn't have before. And so it's that same kind of thing that happened in the garden. She yeah. saw, she looked, and she saw that the food was good and was going to make them wise. You got the same kind of things, those motifs coming through. And so, you know, but the, someone would say, well, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, trying to uh, do that when I exclude food that I think, you know, might have been offered to idol or something. Uh, no, but the point is, is that w- we don't want to exclude the good things that God has given to us, on the one hand. If he's given them to us for good, we should receive them. On the other hand, if it's something that he says stay away from, we want to stay far away from it. And so there's both of that, and the, the Word of God gives us clear direction on that. You know that next verse in Numbers 25, verse 3, uh, Vaitz Ahmed, and Israel became yoked. Yeah. It's this word, uh, yoked. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is important because we... He just talked about being yoked. Don't you know that the one who uh, has sexual immorality with a, a prostitute becomes one with her? There's, yeah. In other words, there's a yoking together. The two shall become one. Right. And that, uh, and he just asserted that the Shema, there is one God, right. one Lord. And so those who truly have the Torah of Messiah, the Torah of Mashiach, as their core governing yoke for their life is going to love God first and foremost as the Shema with all his heart, whole and strength, all her heart, soul and strength. And they're not going to be drawn into this kind of, uh, they're going to be attending to the priorities that Messiah has taught them and is discipling them into to abide in the the love of the Shema and the, uh, the love commanded in the Shema and how that is finds expression in our love for one another, that that's where we reside. That's where we abide in the joy of our fellowship in Messiah and that our eyes, uh, all these commandments are given to support us in that space, that that's where we stay. We don't leave that. Uh, the eyes to go going astray, to lise note, to go a whoring after other things, um, those are going to, that's what's going to happen to people who are truly not oriented to the Shema. I want to draw two things together. One, uh, your kind of objection or 
that I need to clarify earlier, Caleb, um, the idea of that I'm not slamming a person who's zealous for the Torah or, or a person who's picked up the things for the Torah. That's the first idea. And then just to go back a little bit from what you just read, Rob, and then to connect it to our Corinthians passage. You have just prior to this incident, Israel has great victories. They're going town after town after town, we defeating. They're making songs. I mean, they're, they are on a spiritual height. God is with them. God is actually with them. They have great reason for rejoicing. And in that moment, they're right across the Jordan. I mean, they're, they're just on the verge of entering into what God has promised. And they've had all of this real, true spiritual victory. And in the heights of its excitement, then they're, they're tempted and they fall. And I think that's the, I think the connection to this passage. People who are grabbing hold of the Torah and are excited. It's like this is something we've, we have never understood. We've never heard it. We have a zeal for God. We're filled with the Spirit. We know God's truth. And then we get arrogant and we, we condemn the very people. We, we cause bruising to the people right. who the same Messiah has died for, the same God who's about to take us all in, in our arrest. Um, and I guess it kind of goes back to this idea that we need to go back to the book. We need to go back and read what does the book say, what does it teach us, and allow it to teach us all humbly to be excited about it, but to not let our zeal overtake us and actually wound the ones that that Messiah has died for. Well, uh, the day that this show airs will be the day before Thanksgiving. That's right. So, happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners out there. Next week, we will be live again on Wednesday morning. And we will be live with the chat room open, and you'll be able to join us and have a good time. Any final thing to say before we take off, gentlemen? I'd just like to thank any and all of you who have uh, and continue to support us at Tor Resource and Tor Resource Institute. You have made it possible for us to come here again uh, to the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature. We find these not just to be a, a good time for us to learn and interact, but... Um, as the president of Tor Resource Institute, I find these things to be somewhat essential so that we stay uh, on the cutting edge of the theology and the exegesis and biblical studies that are current in our times and that we learn from them and we also understand uh, how we can uh, deal with uh, teachings perhaps that we feel are, are not, not right. And so uh, it's, and it's good for us as a, as a staff to be able to be together and to... Uh, um, kind of uh, challenge each other and learn from each other and to encourage each other. So I just want to thank you all. Uh, you have made this possible for us, and we're, we're very, very grateful. And I agree uh, with what Caleb said. Uh, let's use this day of Thanksgiving as a time to really honestly, from the depths of our heart, thank God for all of the bountiful blessings that he's given to us. No doubt. Amen. All right. Well, uh, we hope that you enjoy your Thanksgiving, eat a lot of food, And remember to be thankful to our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.